This episode is brought to you by NerdWallet. NerdWallet has helpful tools and tips for all things personal finance. What's the difference between a Roth and traditional IRA again? Turn to the nerds. Should you pay down debt or save for retirement? Turn to the nerds. What kind of credit card is best for you? Yep, turn to the nerds. They take the complicated and make it easy to understand. This really is a no-brainer. For all your money questions, turn to the nerds at nerdwallet.com. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing really well, actually. I'm getting ready to launch the newest podcast in the Insight podcast family. It's called Talking Boys, which I'm hoping will be the first episode out by the end of September. But basically, Talking Boys will be a mixture of relationship talk and bad dating advice. It'll be me and a rotation of your favorite podcast hosts. We will have a segment each week with a listener question asking for advice. So keep an eye in the Insight group for a call out of how you can take part. But I'm really excited. Oh, that's really exciting. And you and I are both helping on another podcast. Actually, we have two other podcasts we're helping on. There's a new podcast called Playlist, where we talk music with podcasters by Josh Hallmark. So look for that. I know I've had a lot of fun recording my episode for that. Also, there's a new podcast called We're All Just Pretending. It's people revealing secrets that will be read by your favorite podcasters. There's also a advice section of the episode. So definitely check those out too. You're going to hear so much of us in the podcast world. You're going to be tired of us soon. But you won't be hearing very much from me for the next couple of months. This is our last episode before I go on maternity leave, assuming I get it edited before I actually have the baby. This will be the last time you'll hear from me. We have a few episodes planted for the next few months that we pre-recorded, but I can't believe we're going to be not recording together for like two and a half months. That's just crazy to me. By the time we finish recording this episode, I may cry. I want to first thank Suzanne for posting this story in our group. I thought it looked like the exact type of case we'd be interested in, uh, had a lot to dig into, and it definitely was. It's also a bit unwieldy of a story. It loops back on itself a few times. So we're going to do our best to lay it out in as linear of a fashion as we can manage. This is really the story of three deaths with one common factor, a woman named Pam Hupp. So we're going to tell the story basically in three parts. And our first part is going to talk about the murder of Betsy Faria. Betsy grew up in a family of four girls, and she was the outgoing, social, larger-than-life one. She started DJing in her late teens, and it was a job perfectly suited to both her creative energy but also her social energy. She already had two young daughters when she met her husband, Russ Faria. They married in 2000. At some point in their marriage, they separated for about a year, though they reconciled after taking some marriage classes at a local church that helped them communicate better and work through the issues. But even with this, Russ did have a temper, and they continued to fight after they reconciled, but for the most part, they were happy together. After they were back together, Betsy was diagnosed with breast cancer in early 2010, She pursued aggressive treatment, including a mastectomy and chemo, 
and after a year, she was declared in remission. Betsy and Russ decided to celebrate with a celebration of life cruise with some family and friends. Shortly before the cruise, Betsy learned her cancer was back, and it was bad. It had spread to her liver, and she was given three to five years to live with treatment. But they couldn't operate, and there was no chance of a full cure. Obviously, this was devastating to Russ and Betsy and her daughters. They were teens at this point. Betsy herself was only 42. The family decided to take that cruise anyway and still celebrate life, even though they initially planned to celebrate a cancer-free life, they were going to celebrate the life they had. Russ was able to arrange for Betsy to swim with the dolphins, which was something she very much wanted to do. About 10 years previous to her cancer diagnosis, Betty met a woman named Pam Hupp when they both worked at the same insurance company. Pam was 11 years older. She was married with two kids of her own. They lost touch for a while, but when Betsy was diagnosed with cancer, Pam was right there to support her and keep her company at her chemo appointments. They were supposedly close enough that on December 23rd of 2011, Betsy had Pam named as the beneficiary of an insurance policy of $150,000. She was concerned that Russ and her teen girls, they wouldn't handle the money well themselves and she wanted it to be there when her girls had gotten older. Pam would be trusted to keep the money safe for them. When Betsy's other friends and family found out about this later, they were a bit surprised. Yes, Pam was a supportive friend, but Betsy had a lot of friends who were as close to her or even closer than what Pam was. In addition to leaving money for her girls and her husband after she was gone, Betsy wanted to raise money for another family that were dealing with cancer. Weeks before making Pam the beneficiary of her life insurance policy, Betsy and Pam went door-to-door collecting money for the Murphy family. Laura Murphy was terminally ill with cancer, and she was a friend of Pam's. A flyer was created using the Murphy family's Christmas photo. According to a friend of Betsy's, she said Betsy told her that they had raised $10,000 for the family. Only, it appears the entire thing was a scam. Tracked down by a news crew years later, Laura's husband had never heard of the fundraiser. He'd never seen the flyer, and he said the claims on the flyer, they weren't even true. Like when it said it was Laura's last Christmas. And the family, they never saw the money. There is 0% chance that Betsy knew that it would turn out to be a scam. Zero. Betsy was a dying woman herself, trying to help another family. She had no way of knowing Pam would never give the Murphys the money they collected. On the day of the murder, which happened to be four days after Betsy made Pam the beneficiary on her life insurance policy, Betsy had a chemo appointment. As usual, Pam was going to take her, but that morning, Betsy texted Pam and said her mom's friend was in town for the holidays. This mom's friend had babysat her when she was a child, and they were going to go together. They could have that one-on-one time. So Pam didn't need to come, didn't need to pick her up. Well, Pam showed up to pick Betsy up anyway, saying she never got the text, though later it would be discovered she did get it, and in fact, she even replied to it. Regardless, Betsy had already left and was on her way to the cancer center, so Pam headed over there and spent the time chatting with Betsy and her other friend, even though Betsy had told her in the text that she wanted time alone. After the chemo appointment, Betsy went back to her mom's apartment, which was common, particularly on Tuesdays. 
Russ had a game night with some of his friends near where her mom lived, so she would spend the evening with her mom, and then Russ would pick her up on the way home. This week, though, Betsy texted Russ that she was tired. She needed to rest, so Pam was going to bring her home early. Pam said Betsy asked for the ride, but Betsy's text said Pam had offered. So Russ's game night ended around 9, which it always did, and they actually didn't even play a game that night because one of their people couldn't be there, so they watched movies. He swung through a fast food restaurant on his way home to get something to eat. When he got home, the front door was unlocked. He walked in and he found Betsy on the floor. Now, his first thought was that she wasn't feeling well from the treatment and had fallen, but then his brain kind of caught up to what he was seeing and he realized there was blood and he saw three wounds. Both wrists were slit and the knife was stabbed in her neck and it was still there. The autopsy would show that Betsy was actually stabbed nearer to 55 times, but those wounds wouldn't have been visible immediately. So when a very distraught Russ called 911, he said he thought Betsy may have killed herself. She had dealt with depression in the past and with getting a terminal diagnosis, maybe it was just too much for her to handle. Now, his jump to she must have killed herself would look bad for Russ later, as though he was already trying to deflect the blame or the cause of death away from himself. The scene wasn't staged to look like a suicide with that number of stab wounds, so if he was the murderer, he would have known that and would know the deflection wouldn't have lasted, so I don't really know why this is such a big deal. Regardless, the murder weapon was a knife from their home, and while it was determined that she was stabbed so many times, the wrist and the neck wounds were the fatal ones. Most of the others were inflicted after her death. We need to get into the timelines of the various people in this story, but we're going to have to first take a break for an ad. You know how much I love my dog, Lacey, and how I'm always on the lookout for new things we can try. I discovered this amazing new collar. It's called Link AKC, and believe me, it's so much more than a collar. It's backed by the American Kennel Club. This collar is a GPS locator, a fitness tracker, and more, all controlled through a smartphone app. My favorite part is the activity and wellness tracker. It doesn't matter how old your dog is, and trust me, my dog is old. Link AKC shows the exact amount of activity every dog needs. And everyone who sees it loves it. It looks great. It's easy to set up with sizes for every dog. It won the CES Best of Innovation Award in 2017. Take advantage of the Link AKC Summer Sale for big savings on a collar to help keep your dog safe, happy, and healthy. Plus, as a special thank you for supporting Insight, use code SIGHT at checkout at linkakc.com to save even more and get free shipping. That's code SITE at linkakc.com. Linkakc.com, code SITE. The police arrived and realised that there was no way it could be a suicide. It was certainly a homicide. The last person to see her alive was Pam, and the person to find her was Russ, so their individual timelines would become extremely important. Pam's timeline is rather confusing, honestly because of how inconsistent it was. A little after 7pm, she called her husband from Betsy's house to tell him where she was. She also had Betsy wish him a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
I believe that was all on the voicemail, so we know at 7.05 Betsy was still alive. Pemp's story is inconsistent from here on out. First she said she just dropped Betsy off, then she said she went inside but just to walk Betsy in, and then she said she went all the way into the house to see a gift Betsy had gotten for Christmas. At 7.21 Betsy's daughter called and Betsy didn't answer. She called a few times in a short amount of time because she was trying to get authorization to do something with the family cell phone plan that they were on. At 7.27, cell records show a call from Pam to Betsy. First, she said she called Betsy to tell her that she had gotten home. That didn't work out because she lived at least 30 minutes from the Faria home. Then she said she was almost home when she called, but the cell phone pings later showed that Pam was actually still near Betsy's house. If not at her house when that call was made, she said she called when she got to the highway. Russ's timeline is more documented, much more documented. He was seen on gas station cameras while he ran errands after work. Around 6 p.m., he arrived at his friend's house for game night. There were five people total, including him, and as their Tuesday nights tend to do, they wrapped up at 9 p.m. Russ went to the fast food restaurant, like I said. The receipt was found in his car, and it was time-stamped, 9.09. At 9.40 p.m., he called 911. During his questioning, he had one inconsistency. He messed up the order of his errand running at one point. But since that all happened before 6 p.m. and we know Betsy was still alive at 7 p.m., it doesn't matter. The errands don't fit into the timeline at all. And his cell phone records would all confirm his location. I should correct that. It would at least confirm his cell phone's location. His phone was at his friend's house and then traveled to his home after 9 p.m. In doing the drive from his friend's house to his house, investigators realized he could have sped and arrived up to 10 minutes before he called 911 if he didn't stop at the fast food restaurant. But that would leave 10 minutes to kill his wife and clean up. When police arrived, he was wearing the same clothes seen on the security cameras during his errand running, so it would have meant he would have had to take his clothes off, killed or cleaned up, then redressed, all in 10 minutes. And we know it couldn't have happened in those 10 minutes. Betsy's body was cooled and some of the blood dried, so she had to have been dead for at least an hour. The autopsy would show a few sperm cells in her body, though she was fully dressed. That will come up later. No blood was found on Russ or his clothing. There was some blood found on the tops of a pair of slippers in his closet, though there was no blood trail from the living room to the bedroom, so whoever hid them in the closet would have carried them. There were also no slipper footprints in any of the blood. So naturally, when looking at these two alibis and the evidence, they arrested Russ. He couldn't have killed Betsy and cleaned up in 10 minutes. He also had an alibi for the entire day and evening leading up to the 911 call, so how could he have possibly done this? The theory was that his friends were in all of this with him. They kept his phone while he went to kill Betsy so it wouldn't ping near his house. Now, he didn't have any time constraints. He went home, had sex with her, and killed her while naked, I guess. He then took a shower, he put on the same clothes he wore earlier, he stashed the bloodied slippers and called 911. But what about the phone and the drive-through receipt? They were both at the house with him when the police arrived. 
Well, the story goes is that possibly his friends drove the phone out to him. They stopped to get that receipt just to build him the perfect alibi. So yes, in addition to Russ killing his wife, his four friends were supposedly accessories. In the end, though, none of them were charged. Also to note, the number of sperm cells in Betsy was very low and inconsistent with sex just hours before her body was found. Russ was asked when he and Betsy had last had sex and he answered Sunday night. This timeline is in line with the number of cells found, so I'm not sure why the prosecution tried to shoehorn this into the murder scenario. One thing investigators found suspicious was how many stores he went on his errands. I mean, why go to three stores to buy stuff that you can buy at one? Now, Russ had reasons for this. The cigarettes were cheaper at one place. He had a rewards card for the dog food at another, that sort of thing. But this was presented as though he was trying to build an alibi for the whole night. Russ did fail a polygraph, supposedly. He was told he failed at least. He was given the test about 36 hours without sleep, and he admitted to be using marijuana, which isn't typical procedure for a polygraph. When his lawyer read that, he was a little suspicious. Investigators are allowed to give fake polygraphs. I've never heard of this before, but they can pretend to give a polygraph, and when the person is done, they confront them with the fact that they failed to try to elicit a confession. But they then have to tell the defence it was fake in the process of the trial prep. That's part of discovery. So the attorney asked for a video of the polygraph, but there wasn't one because the camera wasn't working. He asked for the raw data just to prove the polygraph was done, but he never received it. Russ then offered to take a second polygraph, but the prosecutor said no. Pam pointed the finger right at Russ, both in her initial statements to the police and later at Russ's trial. He had a violent temper. He played a quote-unquote game with Betsy where he put a pillow over her face, supposedly. He made jokes about all the money he would get when she died. Pam said Betsy intended to talk to Russ about them moving in with her mom that night. Her mom lived closer to her treatment place, closer to her support system, closer to the tennis club, where, to tell you a little bit about Betsy, she played tennis every day through her chemo treatments. Her mom would be around to help her more, as chemo is very taxing and Russ was working. Betsy was worried to talk to Russ about this because, according to Pam, she was afraid he would get angry. Now, there was DNA found at the scene. Betsy's was the only female DNA found, and it was on the murder weapon and on a bloody light switch. There was also male DNA found on the light switch. Russ was excluded from being a major contributor to this, and the weak contributors were too weak to test. So the forensic evidence at the scene wasn't helpful to the prosecution or to the defense. Now, his defense team strategy to start with was to point out the flaws in Pam's story, and essentially use her as reasonable doubt. The police did not investigate Pam the way you would have expected. They did not test her car for blood. They did take the clothes that she claimed she wore that day and tested them and didn't find anything. But again, they were the clothes she claimed she wore, whereas Russ's clothes had been seen on a surveillance camera. They told her during a video statement that the life insurance payment looked bad because she hadn't turned it over to the kids or put it in a trust for them. So they advised her to go ahead before the trial to put it in the trust so it couldn't be used against her. She put $100,000 in a trust 
and she claimed to give the other 50000 to the child of a friend who died of breast cancer. And just a quick side note, this child was very likely Laura Murphy's daughter, the same family she supposedly fundraised for a few weeks before Betsy died. She never gave the fifty k to them or anyone else. And in a few days after the trial, she almost completely defunded the trust for Betsy's daughters and took all of the money for herself. Betsy's daughters would later sue in civil court for the money, but they ended up losing their case. So Pam Hupp kept the $150,000. But back to the main story. With Pam being the last person to see Betsy alive, her telling inconsistent stories of what happened that night, and the major life insurance payout she had recently been added to, she seemed like a viable alternative suspect to Russ, who had witnesses, receipts, and cell phone records proving his alibi. And I brought this case up in our Facebook group when we were talking about alibis, that this gives me no confidence that anyone could have a strong enough alibi, with Russ having all of this on his side. The biggest issue, though, is that the judge refused to let most of this in. It's incredibly unusual, but the judge said that the alternative theory that Pam did it would not be allowed, and evidence showing this also wouldn't be allowed. It amazes me that the prosecutor was allowed to tell this story about his friends being co-conspirators without proof and without charging them, but the defense was barred from presenting evidence that would question the credibility of the star witness for the prosecution. This is a very baffling decision on the part of the judge. After four and a half hours of deliberation, Russ was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Before we move on with what happens with the rest of this case, we just have one more ad break. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash site. One more time. Try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash site. Russell's attorney planned a traditional appeal, but decided to take a chance on a different process. He filed for a hearing to consider new evidence of the money motive of Pam Hupp after she defunded the trust for Betsy's daughters. Now, this is called a Mooney motion. It isn't common to get this granted, but it was in this case. In fact, it was the fourth time in the history of the state of Missouri that this motion has worked. There are three main points on the defence's side. First, the original judge improbably excluded the evidence that would impeach Pam Hupp as a witness. Second, the judge allowed the prosecutor to present a theory in closing arguments without providing evidence. And third, the prosecutor was having an inappropriate relationship with an investigator who worked on the case and testified in court and did not disclose his personal relationship to the court. The judge overturned the conviction based on the evidence against Pam that was not allowed in the trial. 
it was admissible information and would have likely changed the outcome of the trial. The investigator had denied having a relationship with the prosecutor and the judge said those accusations had nothing to do with his decision. The new trial would allow the evidence against Pam Hupp. In November of 2015, Russ went back to trial. This time he waived his right to a jury trial and was instead going to stand before a single judge. Pam Hupp helped police with the reinvestigation leading up to the second trial. She had a recovered memory of seeing a car parked down the street from Betsy's home the night of the murder with two men in it. And one of those men was Russ. She also disclosed out of nowhere that she and Betsy had actually had an intimate relationship at one point. It sounds from what I've heard that very few people believe her, but it did give more motive for Russ to be angry and also explained why Betsy would have wanted Pam to have so much money when she died. Prior to the first trial, Pam had mentioned an email or letter that Betsy had told her about that she hadn't sent to Pam yet. She told the police it would help. Now, for some reason, the police couldn't or didn't find it before the first trial, but a few days before the second trial, they did find it, and it talked about how Betsy was afraid of Russ. It's odd that Pam knew contents of a letter that was never sent to her, but what was odder was the document file. The defense hired a computer expert to look at the computer, not just at the letter. And he found a few signs that the document didn't originate on that computer. A big one is that it was the only document on the entire computer that listed the author as unknown. And this is what would be expected if the document was created on a different computer and then transferred over. The letter was loaded onto Betsy's computer the day before Pam was named the beneficiary of her life insurance policy. Another big difference in this trial is that Pam was not called to the stand by either side. Now, why the prosecution didn't use their star witness again, it's probably because in the process of the civil trial where Betsy's daughters were suing for the insurance money, Pam claimed to have severe memory problems due to a traumatic brain injury. Not only did the defence have the ability to bring in her inconsistent stories and the life insurance proceeds, they could now use her statements from the civil trial to completely discredit anything she has to say about that night. The defence was still allowed to cover her inconsistent stories and the money issues as part of their defence. The judge found Russ not guilty, and after 41 months in jail, Russ Furrier was a free man. Now, let's rewind back to that first trial. Russ's lawyer was able to get a few questions through to Pam without objection, and one was why it took her so long to put the money into a trust for the girls. In fact, she had only done it five days before the trial started. Her response was that her mother died of Alzheimer's not quite two years after Betsy's death, and she had just been overwhelmed dealing with that. He didn't think much more of her answer until he opened his email to find multiple people emailing him to tell him that Pam was lying. Her mother did not die of Alzheimer's. Shirley Newman, Pam's mother, she was living in an assisted community in a third floor apartment. She did have dementia, which was progressive, but she wasn't near death. She lived alone in her apartment with caregivers available, but she wasn't so far gone that she needed continuous care. On October 29, Pam went to visit her mother and found her incoherent and in pain. She took her mother to the hospital and then back to her own home for the night. 
They spent the day of October 30th together and Pam returned her mother to her assisted living community at about 5pm. She told the staff that her mother didn't need dinner or breakfast the next morning. But the next day when she missed lunch as well, a staff member went to her apartment just to check on her. She could see the railing of the balcony was broken and looked over it to see Shirley lying on the ground. The way the railing was broken was odd. The top bar was still intact. It had vertical bars that were bent and broken. She had apparently fallen through the mental spindles. Two had popped out completely and the others were bent. She was in her night clothes and was determined to have a large amount of Ambien, which is a sedative that is generally used as a sleep aid. But she had a large amount of Ambien in her system. It's been reported that she took eight pills. Now, a side effect of Ambien is sleepwalking, though it's considered a rare side effect. But it's possible that she had gotten ready for bed, took her Ambien, forgot that she had taken it, and she took it again. Or maybe she forgot how many she took, and then she wandered out onto the balcony and fell into the spindles. Her son filed a wrongful death suit against the community and the manufacturer of the railing as a result of this, claiming that the railing was clearly faulty. It would have been interesting to see what would have come out in the civil trial had it gone forward. Perhaps there was a defect to Shirley's specific railing that allowed this to happen, A new show later tried to recreate how much force would be needed to pop out the spindles and bend others, and they concluded that a woman of Shirley's size would not have been able to do it by falling, even if she ran and fell. But they didn't have Shirley's exact railing to examine for signs of defect, so it's really not possible to say. We don't know. This didn't come out in trial because, like I said, the suit didn't go forward. It was dropped by Pam's brother after Pam was arrested for murder because it would clearly become a circus and make the case even more difficult. Now, the murder arrest wasn't for Betsy or Shirley's deaths because, like I told you at the very beginning, Pam's actually connected to three deaths. This is the death of a man named Louis Gumpenberger. Now, Louis Gumpenberger was a 33-year-old man who lived in St. Charles, Missouri in 2016. When he was in his early 20s, he was a father to two young children, but he was also an alcoholic. He was in a serious car accident while driving drunk, and he suffered both brain damage and nerve damage. The nerve damage was largely on the left side, so he walked with a limp, and he only had limited use of his left arm. A neighbour said he barely had the strength to hammer a nail and his only real activity was going for short walks around the neighbourhood where he lived with his mother. The brain damage made it difficult for him to think critically and he tended to have more childlike processing. He also could no longer drive. On August 16th, 2016, a call was placed to 911 by none other than Pam Hopp. She claimed a man was in her home attempting to abduct her. Pam yelled some stuff. The man said some things that are reportedly not entirely intelligible on the recording. And then there were gunshots. When police arrived, they found Lewis dead in Pam's home with multiple gunshot wounds to the chest. According to Pam, she had arrived home around noon and she was still in her car in the driveway when a man jumped into the passenger side. He put a knife to her throat and demanded that she drive to the bank to get, quote, Russ's money. She managed to get out of the car 
and run to the house where she called 911. Fearing for her life, she went to her bedroom to get her gun. As Lewis continued to approach her, she opened fire in self-defense. At the scene, police found the knife Pam reported near Lewis. He also had a note in his pocket with instructions to take Pam to the bank to get Russ's money, directions of where to leave that money at Russ's home, and then to kill Pam for $10,000. Also in his pocket was $900 in $100 bills. The next day, police went to Lewis's home and found his mother having just arrived back from reporting him missing. She hadn't seen him since the day before, and he left the home without leaving a note, as he always did, and without his wallets or his cigarettes. They told her that he'd been shot and killed after breaking into a woman's house. His mum immediately dismissed this. This wasn't something Lewis had done before or something that she could imagine him doing. As investigators learnt more about the extent of Lewis's physical disabilities, they also started realising it may not be something he could have actually done, or at least not with the swiftness that Pam claimed. There were some holes in Pam's story, because aren't there always. How did Lewis end up 13 miles away from his home when he couldn't drive? So she said he was dropped off by a silver car that then sped away. Why did her cell phone ping in Lewis's neighborhood 45 minutes before the 911 call? Well, she claimed she stopped by her daughter's house in the area, and of course her daughter wasn't home to confirm this. Now, how did a man who walked with a limp and had limited movement chase her out of a car and into her home and all the way through to her bedroom? And I'm not sure she even had an answer for that one. And then a police report came to light. Less than a week before Lewis's death, a woman reported that she was outside her home in St. Charles when a woman with a dark SUV pulled up. The woman in the SUV claimed she was a producer with the TV show Dateline. Dateline had extensively covered the Betsy Faria case. This producer offered $1,000 if she would reenact a 911 call for the show. Basically, they just needed some sound bites. The woman first agreed. $1,000 for a few sound bites sounded good, but she changed her mind after thinking about it when the producer had no evidence of who she was. There was no camera crew or obvious recording equipment, and the woman didn't even have a Dateline business card. Being somewhat freaked out by this encounter, she filed a police report. The producer left, but not before the woman's home security cameras caught the entire thing on video, and the SUV of the Dateline producer was the same make and model as Pam Hupp's, and not only that, the license plates matched. Later, another man came forward saying the same day the same thing happened to him. He was in the middle of mowing a lawn, and this producer said it would only take a minute, but this wasn't his lawn. This was a paid job, and he wasn't going to walk off a job like that. He said she was insistent, which made him actually more suspicious, and she eventually just drove off. Dateline has also confirmed that not only did they not send out a producer, they don't pay for sound bites, they don't script them, and they don't reenact 911 calls. This Dateline ruse became and remains the state's theory of the case. Pam approached Lewis, likely while he was sitting outside his home, since he would have taken his cigarettes had he gone for a walk, and offered him the money to reenact this 911 call. Financially, things were difficult for him since he had been unemployed for about two years and Lewis couldn't work outside of work programs that are designed for people with disabilities. And he actually had an interview scheduled for such a company the day he was killed. 
it's hard to consider someone would fall for this ruse, but I mean, we're talking about a rather gullible man who had a brain injury and he really needed money. A professional looking woman in a nice car drove up and offered him hundreds of dollars, maybe up to a thousand dollars for a short and easy job. He just did not have the ability due to his injury to process this whole picture like others may have. So you can see why he fell for it. She took advantage of an extremely vulnerable man. It's believed Pam drove him to her house, had him come inside so they could quote-unquote reenact this 911 call, only she really called 911, said all the things she said, things he probably thought were part of the script, and then shot him for real. The motive wasn't about Lewis. He was a random choice for her. The case of Betsy Faria was the motive. The U.S. Attorney's Office was preparing a review of the case and Russ had filed a civil suit against some of the key players in his wrongful conviction. Among his claims of why those individuals should be held individually responsible is that they failed to investigate another suspect. Based on his defence strategy in both his trials, we all know who he met as the other suspect. With Betsy's death being re-examined by both the U.S. Attorney and the Civil Court, it's alleged Pam was attempting to set up a fake hit on her and make it look like Russ was trying to silence the witness who could implicate him in Betsy's death. A week after Lewis's death, Pam was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. An hour after her arrest, she stabbed herself in the neck and wrist with a pen in an apparent suicide attempt, and you can see her bandaging in her mugshot. Pam Hupp will not go to trial until April of 2018 and will, of course, update you when she does. But because this hasn't gone to trial yet, we don't know all of the evidence against her. But two pieces of evidence that have been made public, four of the $100 bills Lewis had in his pocket was sequential serial numbers. A fifth $100 bill in that sequence was found in Pam's home. But what are the odds that a man who never met Pam before would happen to have the bills that line up with one of hers? Also, the knife Lewis had with him. It's unclear how investigators know this, but eight days before Lewis's murder and two days before the first known attempted dateline ruse, a matching knife and paper that matched the note in Lewis's pocket were both bought at a Dollar Tree store. That same transaction included an air freshener of the same brand, found in the Hup home. It's believed that Pam may have bought these items altogether. Whether there's a receipt, CCTV footage, perhaps a credit card transaction proving that Pam bought these things is a matter for the court. As we said, Pam won't go to trial until April 2018 for this case. Her trial should have started in October of this year, 2017, but her defense team asked for more time to prepare and investigate the evidence. Due to the publicity around this case, they will bring in a jury from another county, though I'm not sure how much that will help find people unaware of the case unless they've brought them in from another part of the state. I mean, this has been on Dateline, it was in People magazine quite recently, and St. Louis magazine published a long-form article on the case. The prosecutor announced he'll be seeking the death penalty. In the state of Missouri, there are 17 aggravating circumstances that can qualify someone for the death penalty, and one of those circumstances is rather broad. It reads, The murder in the first degree was outrageously and wantonly vile, horrible or depravity of mind. 
The state is arguing that this fits because Pam showed depravity of mine in the planning and carrying through of the murder. There is always a chance that facing the death penalty will lead Pam to accepting some type of deal. Missouri currently doesn't have any women on death row, and they haven't put a woman to death since before 1900. In 1953, Bonnie Heady was executed in Missouri for the four-ransom kidnapping and murder of a six-year-old boy, but that was a federal case. It wasn't the state that put her to death, even though she was in the state when she was put to death. So Pam might not really feel there's enough of a risk of getting a death sentence to plead out of, to get out of it. And honestly, Pam is in her late 50s. By the time this goes through court and all that, she'll probably be 60 already. A guilty plea or verdict mean essentially the same thing, that she will likely die in prison. So she may just take her chances in the court. Now, this has led to investigators relooking at the death of Betsy Faria and also of Shirley Newman. Shirley's death remains listed as an accident, and I honestly don't see that changing. It would take an extraordinary amount of evidence that they don't have that Pam did something, and I think that that ship has sailed. If she did, I don't know that she did. Whether Pam will be charged in Betsy's murder, that remains to be seen. So thank you guys for listening. We want to give shout outs to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Jean E, Kim F, Sharon M, Aaron H, and Shannon C. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. And to our five-star reviewers, G Fry1982, Sacto Giggle, Lord Alan Salt, Joe Buff44, Muppets Mom, and St. Wina. We thank you guys so much for leaving those reviews. You can find us on Facebook. We have a page you can like. We have a group where we talk about ongoing cases and interesting news articles and sometimes funny memes. We have Twitter at InsightfulPod. We have Instagram at InsightPod. You can email us at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. That's generally the best way to get show suggestions to us because then we don't accidentally lose them in in a thread somewhere. If you want to donate to the show, we have a Patreon, and that's an ongoing monthly donation or a one-off donation through PayPal on our website, which is insightpod.com. <laughs>